1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Paul Russell Semendinger about his new book, The Least Among Them 29 Players, Their Brief Moments in the Big Leagues, and A Unique History of the New York Yankees.
0: Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Well, it's great to have you. As I told you before we came on, I really enjoyed your book, and um, I'm excited for our listeners to hear all about it. Um, So I was wondering if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, what writing you've done,
0: those kind of things. Oh, awesome. Yes, sir. So I am a recently retired principal. I was a public school educator for 32 years. I just retired at the end of the 2022 school year, but I worked all summer long um, preparing my uh, the, the, the principal who's going to replace me, who is replacing me now. Um, and we had a great summer getting her ready for this new school year. And, uh, so I have lots of free time now, though I still teach a college at Ramapo college. And of course I, I write a lot. So this was my first sports Yankees book. I've also written a novel called scattering the ashes. I have a number of children's books and I wrote a book of motivational essays called impossible is an illusion. My next book is coming out in April. And I'm very excited about that book. That is going to be uh, Roy White, who was a great Yankee. Uh, it's going to be his autobiography, and we've just about finished all the work on that. And so uh, that's coming out in April. It's named "From Compton to the Bronx." It'll be the story of Roy White and his wonderful baseball career.
1: Wow, that's I'm I'm excited to read that. I mean, Roy White is um, certainly one of the more one of the most underappreciated. Yankees probably in the team's history um, that's just, I was just I just read um, not to get off track here but I just read uh, a new biography on Ricky Henderson by Howard Bryant I saw um, it I have not read it yet but it looks great it was yeah it's, it's very you know it's it's you combine a great writer and a, and a great subject and you get a great book <laughs> um, but uh, he uh, he specifically talked he talked a lot about the the um, race in the history of the Yankees and he he felt to some extent Ricky got a a, a bad shake due to you know perceptions about race and stereotypes about race and throughout Ricky's career in general and to an extent with the Yankees and Bryant said that he felt that um, that historically that the white Yankees had been kind of treated better and that he, he mentioned Roy White in particular, is why I bring this up, that Roy White, Willie Randolph, for a couple guys he felt should have got more recognition from the franchise. And he wondered aloud if that was because of race.
0: Uh, I'm not able to answer that, obviously, because I'm not the Yankees, but I can say that Roy White has definitely been underappreciated by the Yankees. Uh, If you look position by position, I think it would be hard to find a person who would be considered the best left fielder in Yankees history other than Roy White. Roy White was a Yankee um, for 15 years from 1965 through 1979. He's the only guy who was a Yankee for the entire decade of the 1970s. He was on obviously the world championship teams in 77 and 78 and the play or the World Series team in 79. And when you look at the Yankees leaders in all time categories, he ranks right up there. I think he's 11th all time in war. I don't have that in front of me. But um, when you think of the great history of the Yankees and the people that they're putting into Monument Park and whose numbers they're retiring, it's very clear that they have skipped over Roy White. And it, the time has come for them to recognize Roy White and give him his due honor in Monument Park. No doubt about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I certainly look forward to that. Maybe we'll have you back on uh, in the spring to talk about Roy White. I would love that. Um, all right. But back to the present book. Uh, of course, you know, the, the title of your book includes the clause, a unique history of the New York Yankees. And that it certainly was. Um What's, what's unique about this book? Tell, tell us what's different about about your book.
0: All right. So the, thank you. Uh, for the Yankees, of course, the history of baseball can't be told without telling the stories of the great Yankees, you know, starting with Babe Ruth, but even going back before that, guys like Jack Chesborough um right at the, one of the first early great Yankees, Wee Willie Keeler, but then, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Reggie Jackson, Don Mattingly, um, Ricky Henderson. You look at all these great ball players who were Yankees and the history of baseball again, can't be told without hearing about them. When Paul Simon and, and Garfunkel wrote their song, uh, Mrs. Robinson. They mentioned Joe DiMaggio when they make movies about baseball players. Pride of the Yankees is about Lou Gehrig. 61 was about Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and the home run chase, et cetera. And everybody always talks about the most famous Yankees of all time. But there were other guys who played for the Yankees, if only for a moment. And my book talks about the 29 players whose entire career lasted for just one game. And that game was with the Yankees. So they are part of the history of the Yankees. But everybody, when they talk about the Yankees, talks about the most famous ballplayers and the most famous seasons. And that's great. But I thought these guys also deserve to have their stories told.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the things I loved about your book was, you know, you, you t- I mean, you tied these guys' stories into uh, that greater history very well, and you, you know, you always when you, whether it be the 1905 Yankees, or the 1912 Yankees, you know, you you use kind of these, as you call them, at least among them, you use their their team, some of the more f- famous teammates or opponents as as reference points, as well as the the stadiums they played in it and stuff like that to really um, give it show their place in the greater context of the game, which I think is really what makes the book work. Um, I'm wondering, I want to get into the content of the book, but first I'm fascinated about your research process for this book. Um, first of all, and I think you said this, but I just want to clarify, were these 29 players discussed in the book, is that all of the Yankees who appeared in just one major league game? That's that is the, correct. Okay. And how did you find these 25, 29 guys? <laughs>
0: it's a great question. So, um, Really, basically, it goes back to me just being a Yankee enthusiast to the nth degree. And I just one day was researching the Yankees and their history and and just looking at the different players who played for the Yankees. And I do this often um, just for fun. And the first guy whose name struck me was Brad Arnsberg, who had pitched for the Rangers, but he had pitched for the Yankees for only one game. And I was like, huh, he pitched for the Yankees for just a game. And then I said, I wonder how many other guys played for the Yankees for just one game. And then I started to discount the guys who had played for the Yankees for just one game, who also then played for other franchises. So Brad Arnsberg quickly went off the list. And then I realized that there were 29 of them. It's really 31. And we can get into that. As as you know, I did write a chapter about two guys who I'm not ready to put into the uh, category of the least among them yet. But um, there, there were 29 guys. And I said, you know what? I would love to research and find out about each of these guys. And maybe there's a book there. And obviously uh, there was.
1: Yeah. And, you know, many of these players are, are from the early part of the 20th century. Um, and obviously by the nature of the book, we're not talking about the, the Ty Cobbs and Honus Wagners and Trish Speakers of the world. You know, where did you, how are you able to find so much information about these Seemingly random guys from 1905 who played just one game in in Major League Baseball.
0: It's a great question. Um, the internet is a wonderful place if you spend time researching. Baseball Reference is an amazing, amazing, amazing site. There's a plethora of information there. Um, so that's where it all started. I looked at Baseball Reference. I looked at Roto Sheet. I tried to come up with, um, you know, what exactly happened in each of their games, you know, for the early guys from the early 20th century. A lot of those guys, even the um, box scores aren't necessarily available. And so then the next thing I did was I reached out to the library at the Baseball Hall of Fame and I asked if I could come up and research there. And of course, they said yes. And here's the great thing about the Hall of Fame. If you make an appointment to research at the Hall of Fame in the um, in their library, what they will do is they will collate and find and pull all the material that you need ahead of time so that when you get there, you don't have to spend your time researching the shelves or or the books there. All of your information's already there for you. So... They actually have a file on every single person who's played major league baseball. And so I gave them the names of these 29 guys. And I said, could you have their files pulled for me when I get there? And I made the appointment. Cassidy Lent is the librarian there who I worked with and she was just phenomenal and is phenomenal. And so I got there right when they opened and I spent an entire day, um, I actually went up twice, but the first time I actually went with my one son, Alex, and we spent the day reading through the files, finding out every little bit of information about all these players. One of the things that was funny was one of the guys, I actually corrected the file. They had him down as a player who uh, played for the Seattle Mariners, but he actually was pitched for the Yankees against the Mariners. So I said, we have to correct that one. And so they did. I corrected one little tiny piece of paper in the Hall of Fame. But interestingly, some of the files were empty. They had nothing on these players. And then the rest of the time, it was up to me to just keep scouring around and and trying to find other information. Newspapers.com is actually a great site as well, because if you're lucky enough, you can find newspapers from those exact days when the guys played and you can find out other information about them. And so those were really the primary sources of information for me.
1: I that That's phenomenal that, that the hall of fame pulls all that information for you. I mean, that's just, I, I mean, God bless the librarians, right? I mean, that is incredible.
0: It's incredible. And they are the nicest, most patient, kindest people in the world. Like, you know, obviously I'm a published author, but I, I'm not a published author of note. I'm not Stephen King or, you know, uh, um, Phil Pepe or or any any uh, Joe Posnanski or anything like that. I'm not a famous baseball author or anything like that. And yet when you reach out to the Hall of Fame and you say, I'm doing research for a book, they treat you as if you are. You know, you're treated like a king and they, they, they just... Are only too happy to do whatever they need to do to help you in your research. And I just found that whole process to be wonderful. Now, one of the things I'm going to do, and it may not happen till next summer, but I'm going to get it back up to the Hall of Fame. And I'm going to take all of the papers that I have, all of my original research and have those files pulled again one more time. And I'm going to donate all of my research to the Hall of Fame. So if people ever go back and they want to look up any of these guys, they'll be able to find my research as well in each of those guys' files. Oh,
1: that's great. That's really cool that you're doing that. Um, so moving on to the content of the book. Um, just, you know, this, uh, this whole idea of a guy playing just one major league game is so fascinating. Did, did you find certain themes among these, least among them, you know, whether it be their personal histories or their traject- trajectories to the big leagues? Was there something that unified some of these guys in some way
0: as to why they only played one game in the league? That's a great question. I, I don't know if there's something that unifies them all. I think for the guys who played in the early 20th century, the early 1900s, a lot of those guys, and maybe it's just because there isn't as much research material on them, seem to come out of the blue and get their one chance. A team seemed to be short of players, and it's almost like the the old idea of pulling a fan out of the seats and saying, could you play for us today? It's, it wasn't quite that extreme, but but it seemed like you know this guy had played college ball and was just sort of hanging around. And the next thing you know, he's on the Yankees for a day because they were short. Um one of the guys was a player's brother that seemed to happen more often in the early years of baseball. And I think really just what happens is sometimes players get their chance and they get injured. Sometimes players get their chance on the last day of the season. And then by the time the next year rolls around, things have changed. Sometimes the manager changes and the different manager has a different perspective of the player. And, you know, sometimes guys are traded and, uh, and sometimes, like I said, life just gets in the way and and things don't always go as planned. And for these guys, they had their chance and they weren't ever able to get that second chance. Interestingly, a number of the guys didn't necessarily even get to play in their positions. They played in a position other than what they had come up as, like a, a guy who was a pitcher ended up playing center field in his one game. So, and only for an inning or so. In fact, that happened for one of the players is one of the other, one of the starters wasn't quite ready. And so they said, Hey, you go out there and play for an inning. And he played, and then they brought him off the field. And then he just never got another chance. I think, I think it was the first, I want
1: to ask about a few of these guys in particular. I think the first person you listen to book, uh, the first least among them is an outfielder named, Elvio Jimenez. Yes, sir. 1964. And you show, and there's a picture of, of his baseball card is marked 1965 rookie stars. And I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder as I'm reading this book, particularly for someone like him, because some of these guys, like you said, they were, you know, during the war years or whatever, were just plucked out of college to fill a roster. But here's a guy who was at least a decent sized prospect. And, um, for someone like that, is it is it satisfying to have played one game in the major leagues, or is that or is that one appearance
0: kind of a painful reminder that they didn't quite make it? Wow, I think that's a deep philosophical question that uh, I think we'd have to talk to each of them to answer. Right. Yeah. Now, Elvio Jimenez was interesting because um, his brother had a very short major league career as well, though he played more than one game. And Jimenez eventually goes to the Pirates. And as you mentioned, he's pictured on a 1965 Topps card with the Yankees as a rookie star. In 1969, he again is pictured on a Topps card, this time with the Pirates as a rookie, um, you know, rookie star, hopefully eventually great Major League Baseball player. And of course, he didn't make it there either. And he never even had a chance to play in the majors with the Pirates. Uh, He was a great hitter. but for whatever reason, he just couldn't stick with with the club, and and get his chance. In fact, that one game he played, he played virtually. In fact, in fact, he played the whole entire game, and he had three hits. He probably was the most successful overall of any of these, least among them, Yankees, as far as how well they did in their one chance in the major leagues.
1: Well, and there's <clears throat> there's a great anecdote about him in the book as well that he he. Was the scout that signed Fernando Valenzuela to the Dodgers, which was very interesting. Um, and by the way, there are there are a lot of kind of hidden gems like that in Paul's book. I I learned a lot, um, things like that. Just a lot of a lot of random interesting facts that were very interesting. Um, so clearly, Jimenez stayed in the game for a long time after his you know his one appearance. How common was it for? the least among them to stay in the game in some capacity after their
0: lone appearance. Again, I think it's on a person by person basis. The next chapter of course is about Frank Verdi, and Frank Verdi got his one shot. And then he stayed in the game as a manager for decades. And in fact, he's in the international league hall of fame for being one of the great managers in that league. So he stayed in the, in the game for, for decades. In fact, when uh, Verdi actually played years before um, Jimenez. And as uh, El- Elvio Jimenez was coming up, Frank Verdi was still trying to hold on. And they both played in Amarillo, Texas together. Uh, as, as Verdi's going down the ladder, still barely trying to hang on, uh, Imenes is going up the ladder and they were teammates for, for one season, I think in 1963, um, in, uh, in Texas, which was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, some of the guys, they stuck around other guys. They, they, they didn't their, their time had come and, um, you know, especially if it was an injury and When you're a major league baseball player and you're making major league baseball player money, that's quite a good gig to have. But if you're a minor league baseball player and you're trying to do what you need to do to establish a family or establish a life, they don't pay great in the minor leagues. And traditionally they paid even worse uh, all those years ago. And so there has to come a time in a person's life where they say, you know, the dream is over. I, I can't sustain living this dream. I have to, you know, grow up, if you will, and and do my next job because I can't continue to hope to play a boys game for the rest of my life because it looks like it's not going to happen.
1: Right. I'm glad you brought up Verdi because uh, he was, he's noteworthy, uh, uh, even among the least among them because um, I think I remember this correctly. He neither had an at-bat
0: nor a put-out in his lone appearance. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. He, uh, he was playing, he went in to play shortstop for Phil Rizzuto and, um, he took the field in the bottom of the inning and nobody ever hit the ball to him. Um, and then in the next inning, the Yankees staged a rally. They had a chance to, to, to get back in the game. They had been losing and his, at that time was coming closer and closer. And I could just imagine how he felt like, Hey, you know what? If the next guy gets a hit, I'm going to be on deck. Or if the next guy gets a hit, I'm going to get up. And manager Casey Stengel pulled him back and he sent up a different rookie, Bill Renna, to pinch hit for him. And and then that was that. He never he never even got a chance. He was on the field, but he had no chances and no at-bats.
1: And so with him, for example, did, did you find him on, on baseball reference, even though he didn't have an at-bat or a put-out?
0: Yes. He, cause he's in the box score. Yep. Okay. Right. Amazing.
1: Um, so of, of these 29 or, you know, you can include the other two, the 31 least among them. Um, is there one that, that stands out to you as, as a guy who uh, should have, or perhaps would have under different circumstances uh, made it in the, in the league, you know, but didn't, be it due to timing or an injury they suffered or something?
0: You know, that's a great question. But I I think any of them, especially the more recent guys, a lot of those guys really had a lot of talent and had the chance. Interesting, there was a guy, he's Chapter 19, Hal Stowe. He was a right-handed pitcher. In 1980, hmm. 83 or 84, I remember, being a young Yankee fan. And the Yankees, of course, had this flame-throwing lefty named Dave Rigetti, who had thrown a no-hitter, I believe, in 83. And then in 1984, they changed him from being a starting pitcher to being a relief pitcher. The Yankees made him their closer. As Rich Gossage had left, they made uh, Rigetti the closer. And a similar thing happened with Hal Stowe. He was a very good starting pitcher, and they made him into a relief pitcher. And Hal Stowe's unfortunate um, story is that the Yankee manager in 1960, Casey Stengel, was really high on Hal Stowe. And he was really somebody who was in his corner and felt that Hal Stowe was somebody who might be a big role or have a big role on the Yankees the next year, which which would have been the famous 1961 Yankees. But what happened after his one game in 1960, the Yankees went to the World Series in one of the most famous World Series. They play the Pittsburgh Pirates. They outscore the Pirates, you know, something like 19 million to four. But the Pirates end up winning the World Series because they edged out the Yankees in four different games. And of course, when Bill Mazarowski hit that home run to win it all for the Pirates, that ended Casey Stengel's managerial reign with the Yankees. And uh, so Casey was basically fired and the new Yankee manager, Ralph Houck, wasn't as high on Hal Stowe and he never got his chance.
1: Yeah. It's sometimes, sometimes you just got to get lucky. Yes. Um, It's crazy. Uh, What another player I wanted to ask you about was um, Floyd three finger Newkirk um, another least among them. And uh, I, the, the nickname is pretty self-explanatory. He had three fingers and it got me wondering, um, have there been a lot of pitchers in the history of baseball with, you know, either deformed fingers or missing digits, because it, it seems like it
0: could potentially be advantageous. Well, and then there's Mordecai three finger Brown who's in the hall of fame who had, had the similar thing. Um, you know, again, in the earlier days of baseball, these guys, a lot of the players, they came from rural backgrounds and farms and things like that, and and that was not an easy way of life. And they were dealing with heavy machinery, and accidents happened. And he was one of these guys, and and the uh, he lost a couple of fingers, and when he got back to throwing a baseball, the way he gripped a baseball gripped it in such a way that the ball had unique movement and that helped him rise through the minor leagues. I think he played in the Pacific Coast League and um, helped him eventually get his one shot in the major leagues. Now, I I don't have the research. I've never researched how many different major league baseball pitchers have, you know, deformities or fewer fingers Mm -hmm. or things. I, I think you can say this is just, uh, spitballing, but, but when you see a lot of, uh, picture pictures of pitchers, um, I think a lot of those guys in order to get a good torque and good spin on the ball and, and, and things like that, a lot of those guys seem to have extra large hands, you know? Um, but how many people, um, are missing digits and things like that? I wouldn't be able to say. Right. Uh, one,
1: one of the great, I told you before we came on, one of the great features of the book is is what you call extra innings. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, what extra innings
0: are in the book? Sure. I, I felt that the stories of these 29 different players were compelling enough, and, and they're great stories. And each of those people, as I said, deserves to have their chance to have their story told. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that. But as you also mentioned, I don't know if a story of just those twenty-nine players on its own would have enough reading interest to 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 excite the public or the casual baseball fan. You know, basically the stories are similar uh, for these guys. They had a chance. They worked real hard. They made it to the major leagues. They got there, one game, and then it was over. So I felt the book needed a little something, and because you know, the Yankees have such a rich history, I was able to tie each of their games into something bigger. I was able to see a player on the other team who did something or a player he played with who did something or a coach on the team or, or some type of connection between that player and a bigger story in baseball history, such as the longest, um, teammates who have been together the longest. And so we looked up the longest Yankees who have been together or Yankees, like we mentioned about Roy White, who are missing from Monument Park. And in this book, I focus on Greg Nettles. The Yankees don't have any third baseman out of their long history honored in Monument Park or the tallest Yankees or the shortest Yankees who were very successful or, you know, a different story about Babe Ruth's called shot and, and, Wally Pipp and his famous headache, and all sorts of things. I just felt that those stories would would add to the overall, as you mentioned before, story of each of the players and the context of the time in which they played, and actually make the book that much more compelling. and And I enjoyed writing those extra uh, extra innings chapters because they were often things that stories that no one else has ever told as well.
1: Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. You know, even, you know, you talk about, um, for example, the two sports stars. Um, I, you know, I I remember Deion Sanders, um, but, and I think I knew a couple of the others, but I had no idea, uh, I had no idea that George Hallis played baseball, for example. Um, That was like, there were just a lot of cool, interesting facts in there. um, And I enjoyed reading about, I was a student at the University of Michigan when Drew Henson was competing for playing time with some guy named Tom Brady. And so uh, that brought brought back some memories. Um, but, it, it, I mean, yeah, it, it, those sections were just chock full of interesting facts. Like, who knew who, – you know, I know a ton about Yankee history. I never realized that there's not a third baseman in Monument Park. Like, that was just – I don't know. Do you, think, do you think Greg Nettles deserves to have his number retired?
0: Oh, absolutely. And we were joking beforehand that we could talk for eight hours about all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, Greg Nettles was my favorite player growing up, and um, he absolutely – so I, I say that he was my favorite player, so maybe I'm bringing my own personal bias and, and fandom into this. But he is um, the longest tenured third baseman in Yankee history – Obviously, he was an all-star. He was world champion, et cetera, et cetera. He was a Yankee captain. I think he led the American League in home runs in the 1970s, definitely among third basemen, Um, and he won a couple of gold gloves. You know, I have a Yankee site called Start Spreading the News, and I did a couple of articles where I compared Nettles' defensive prowess with Brooks Robinson. And when they were – obviously, they were contemporaries. And when Brooks was playing – and they were voting for the gold glove. They just basically gave it to Brooks Robinson every year, even if somebody played better. And, and I showed historically that Nettles had some seasons that were probably better than Brooks Robinson's, but he didn't get the opportunity to win some of those awards. In fact, Nettles, believe it or not, led position players in war twice in the 1970s. And nobody knows that because nobody really followed, or there wasn't even a statistic called war back in the 1970s. But Nettles is severely underrated. I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, There's a very few third basemen in the Hall of Fame. And when you look at the ones who are there, he ranks right with most of them and above many others uh, when you look at lifetime war. So absolutely, he, he deserves to be there. And I think the Yankees have gone a little overboard in retiring uniform numbers. They, they, they seem to retire numbers of guys who were very good and not great, and that's their prerogative. But while they're doing that, what bothers me as a longtime Yankee fan and a Yankee historian is when we honor Paul O'Neill and say, you have your number retired. I'm not saying that Paul O'Neill wasn't great, but there were other Yankees who were better than Paul O'Neill and who the casual fan will never get a chance to learn of or hear of because those guys' numbers aren't retired. And one of those guys is Hank Bauer, who was a multiple-time World Series champion. He was a a, a combat veteran in World War II. He won, um, as I say, a ton of World Series. He also wore number nine, just like Greg Nettles. And he was a better player in many regards than, than Paul O'Neill. And nobody knows Hank Bauer except if you're a diehard fan. And my feeling is, if Paul O'Neill's number is retired, it's a shame, if not a crime. And I put crime in quotes, but you know, a crime against Hank Bauer that that his number's not retired. So Greg Nettles, here's the easy thing for the Yankees since they've retired so many numbers. It, number nine is retired for Roger Maris. It was retired many years later. It was retired in the early 1980s you know, after Nettles had been playing for the Yankees. So um, the Nettles wore number nine. The Yankees could very easily, and it wouldn't take any more numbers out of circulation to say, we're going to have a day. We're going to put Greg Nettles in Monument Park and we're going to retire his number. Well, you don't have to do anything to retire his number. It's already retired. All you have to do is say, number nine's also retired for Greg Nettles. And while they're at it, they could say, and number nine's also retired for Hank Bauer because they also if if Paul O'Neill deserves it, then Hank Bauer deserves it. And as we started the show, number six is retired for Joe Torrey. And number six was worn by Roy White forever. So they could do the same thing with Roy White. Hey, number six is now also retired in the name of Roy White. It doesn't take the number out of circulation. It just is a way to honor these guys who've been forgotten by the franchise.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, the Paul O'Neill thing is, so I grew up, I, my all-time favorite Yankee is, is Don Mattingly. That's just, you know, that's that's when I grew up and that, you know, that, that he was my f- first guy and he'll always be my number one. Um, but, I, you know, I love those, the the dynasty teams of the late 90s. And I would say my favorite player on those dynasty teams was Paul O'Neill. I, I, I love the way he competed. Um, and that being said, I don't think he should have his number retired. Um, and if I don't think he should have his number retired, you know, I mean, I love the guy I loved him. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have a problem with it. I'm, I, I just, I can't get too worked up about a guy getting his number retired, but um, it does seem somewhat arbitrary. Uh, some of the guys that they've chosen to retire, uh, he might, he might be the most egregious. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think Willie Randolph's another guy who, has just as strong a claim as, say, Paul O'Neill, for example. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like you said, we could we could
0: go on all day about that, right? Oh, ab- absolutely. And Willie Randolph does deserve. Uh, he's also, you know, and he's also close to being a Hall of Famer. Uh, if you look at the great second baseman of all time, he's, and and you look like on Lifetime War. And again, I don't have all these statistics in front of me to to pull up. But if you look at the list of the greatest second baseman of all time. And you just start going down the list and you're saying like, wow, that Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. And then you get to like Robbie Cano, who obviously now with PEDs and things, makes his career in question. And not very long before you reach the name Willie Randolph, amongst the greatest second basemen who aren't yet in the Hall of Fame. And I think he's got a great case as well, no doubt. Yeah.
1: Um, was there a specific extra inning chapter that you particularly enjoyed
0: researching and/or
1: writing about?
0: <laughs> hey, you know what? Um, that's that's a great question. It's I have three sons, and they're all great, and it's sort of like asking which of them is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll, so, we'll,
1: we'll discuss I, that afterwards. I don't want you to have, say that on the air.
0: Yes, indeed. And, and <laughs> the answer is, is all of them. Right. You know, I was, as I said, I just retired as a principal. I used to go into each classroom and say, you know, you're my favorite class. And the kids knew that they were, but they also knew that the other classes were also my favorites. So, you know, we we, we love them all the same. I think I the most fun I had in researching was when I was researching something that no one else had ever researched. And and I was doing my own research. Um, my own research, like Yankees whose names were uh, known as Doc or, you know, like I said, the shortest Yankees or um, the tallest Yankees or the Yankees who are the teammates for the longest period of time or the Yankees who served in combat in World War II. Things like that was were, 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 were chapters that Yankees whose names had changed who, who who were known by names other than the way that their names were on their birth certificate their family names things yeah, like really, that I really enjoyed
1: that one I mean a couple in particular that
0: you know that I had no idea
1: or like Eddie Lopat Bucky Dent I, I had no idea what their real names were
0: Right isn't that something so yeah. th- th- those were those were very fun to to research but, but all of it was, I mean, you, you can't spend the time writing a book and doing the work to write a book if you don't love what you're doing. If, if, if you don't, I think the writing would get stale very quickly and, and the reader would be put to sleep. Yeah.
1: Not to mention, I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's so many hours, so much time of your day that goes into that, that you have to, you have to be passionate about it. Uh, or 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 be get paid a, an obscene amount of money. <laughs>
0: Correct, and <laughs> what, and again, maybe other? if we were um, Stephen King or J.K. Rowling or somebody like that, they'd pay us a a ton of money to write books. But at this point, um, all, all the work is is really just like my blog, my Yankee site. It's it's just a labor of love. We do these things because it's it's where we want to spend our time, and it's a great way to be an artist in a way and to express ourselves through words.
1: Yeah, um, it, one you know one of the extra innings I, I particularly enjoyed uh, was about Jim Bouton, um, and uh, of course I you know I've read his his you know fantastic book Ball Four, and I didn't know I I, I thought his career was over after that, um, but there's more to the story, right? Could you talk about that a little bit? How his
0: career ended? Sure, Jim Bouton and. Um... You know, Ball 4 has been updated a couple of times, and he does talk about this. And there's also another book called The Greatest Summer, which talks about uh, the comeback that he made. I believe it was 1977 or 78. And, you know, Jim Bouton loved playing baseball. And um, I live in northern New Jersey. And even into his late 50s, he pitched in a semi-pro league called the Met League in Bergen County because he just loved playing baseball. I mean, that's the way ball four ends. Spoiler alert, basically says you spend your whole life gripping a baseball, but in the end, it was the other way around. And I believe that to be true. I, I still, I'm in my mid fifties. I still play baseball. Um, I never made it to the major leagues, obviously, but I, I still play in a couple of competitive baseball leagues. Um, and, and I'm still pitching and trying to get guys out. Um, but Jim Boughton was a major leaguer who just could never give up the game. And he, and he played even after his playing days. So he wrote ball four, uh, that did not make him a popular guy in clubhouses and his season, his career basically ends the next year, 1970, I believe. And so then Jim Bouton decides to get into doing other things like writing. He writes a sequel called I'm glad you didn't take it personally. He becomes a newscaster. And by the way, if you've never read, I'm glad you didn't take it personally. I I just read it for the first time in probably a few decades last summer. And it was just phenomenal. I I don't remember it being great, but it was great. I I laughed out loud. It was so funny. Um, And he talks about a lot of the reaction he got after writing ball four, but to cut to the chase years later, he still got, hadn't gotten baseball out of his system. And he played for a couple of minor league teams. And eventually Ted Turner of the Braves said, I'll give you a chance to try to make it to the braves. And he worked real hard and he made a comeback and he played a few games with the braves. Again, I think it was 1977 or 1978. I'd, I'd have to look that up. Um, but yeah, he made it back. I'm looking as I'm, as I'm talking, it was 1978. Um, I'm looking through the book as, 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 as we talk, which isn't necessarily the easiest thing. But, and he pitched a number of games for the Braves that year and made his great comeback. And that's why there were two other guys, uh, Matt Tracy and um, Jose Paula, who last played in 2015, who I didn't want to jinx and give up their chance of getting another chance like Jim Boughton did many years later to make it back to the major league. So I call them two who might be joining the team. Do do they have any real chance? I think Matt Tracy does not because uh, he became a coach in the Toronto Blue Jays organization. But the last I checked, Jorge De Paula was pitching in the Mexican League. And, hey, anything could happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, know, you talked a little about um, kind of underrated, underappreciated Yankees. And uh, one more who you talk about in the book who I? It was nice to <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> He's kind of gotten a bad rap, and it was nice to hear you kind of set the record straight. Was was Wally Pip? Um, can you tell us? That there's, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of people just know him as the guy who Lou Gehrig replaced. Can you talk a little bit about Wally Pip?
0: Yeah, Wally Pipp was a great, great ball player. In fact, he was the first Yankee to lead the league in home runs in two different years. And he was a fantastic first baseman. He was the first baseman when the Yankees first became really good in the uh, 1920s. He played first base on those first three World Series teams in 21, 22, and 23. And then what happened, obviously, Lou Gehrig was coming up and Wally Pipp got beaned. It wasn't, and these are obviously the days before batting helmets and he continued to play, but he, <laughs> um, there was the, the story about Wally Pip is just incorrect that one day he went to the manager and said, I have a headache. And the manager said, okay, sit down. And then Gary, you know according to legend, then has a great game and he never goes out of the lineup. That just didn't happen. Wally Pipp still continued to play and Lou Gehrig got in the lineup and didn't necessarily stick for a little while. It was a couple of uh, weeks, I believe, before Lou Gehrig got his chance to play every single day. And so, and then Wally Pipp was eventually traded to the Cincinnati Reds where he had a couple more good years. He was really um, a player who gets a bad rep because of the fact that the history of Wally Pipp isn't told accurately. Yeah, um, and
1: I, like I said, I really appreciated you kind of setting the record straight on that. Uh, another fun, another fun extra innings, by the way, was about uh, the position players who um, who have pitched. Yankee position players who have pitched. It. I remember, I remember distinctly Wade Boggs pitching. That yes, game.
0: that was a fun one.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, why do you talk about the one the one Yankee
0: who who position player who pitched? more than once you know what you're gonna stump me there I'm looking it up as we talk uh, Rick sirone oh Rick <laughs> I Are was Rick thinking Saron. Rocky Colavito pitched in 1968 I think G Michael pitched once and I was thinking like oh hope he doesn't ask me who did it more than once yeah. because <laughs> <laughs> so Rick Saron. you 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 answered your own question
1: yeah. there we go. Rick Sarone the 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 catcher is he still with the team does he still work with the team
0: I don't believe he does the Yankees had a PR guy named Rick Sarone who isn't Rick Sarone Oh so,
1: right, right, right that's right i forgot so about that So they
0: had a Sarone Rick Sarone uh the Yankee uh spelled C E R O N E and then the PR guy was C E R R O N E so they both had the same name oh. pronounced oh, so maybe the get, same Did the catcher ever work for the team though I don't believe he ever did. He played for the Yankees on a number of different instances, but I don't believe he ever coached with the team.
1: Okay. Then I I must have just confused him with the other Rick Cerrone all along.
0: It could be uh, Rick Sarone was one of those
1: guys who that could have been, that could have been an extra Indians, How many Rick Sarones have worked for the Yankees? <laughs> That's true. How many how many Rick
0: Sarones there are in, in Yankees history? That that would have been <laughs> that, that would have been pretty good.
1: Um, all right, Paul, I'll get I'll, I'll get you out of here with one last question that I like to ask all my guests. Um, first, again, the name of Paul's book is the least among them. 29 players, their brief moments in the big leagues and a unique history of the New York Yankees. And as we've discussed, it it certainly is a unique history of the New York Yankees, but um, it it's a fascinating one. I mean, I really, uh, as someone who knows a great deal about the Yankees history, I learned a lot. Um, like I said, a lot of just hidden gems, you know, even just stuff like um, I found it very interesting that the Yankees had tried to sign Hank Greenberg, for example. Um, I, I'm trying to think of some others, but there are just a lot of little gems in there like that that I think, um, you know, even people who know a lot about the history of the Yankees in the game will find interesting. Um, so, Paul, my last question for you is: What is your all-time favorite sports book? <laughs>
0: I'm sitting here in my home library looking at shelves and shelves of of uh of books, but we already talked about my favorite book of all time and it's ball four it, that book just uh, you know I think I was just talking about this with with somebody a, a couple of weeks ago. I think I read ball four when I was twelve or thirteen, which was probably much too young to read ball four as as a kid um, but it was just eye-opening and hysterical and fun. And I I loved it. I, I actually had the chance to meet Jim Bowden, uh years and years later, and he was the most kindest person ever. I was just a kid. And um, um, long story short, we had a cable television show for our high school. And I was trying to do something really special and get a Yankee on there. And of course, the Yankees we're not interested in talking to a 13-year-old or 14-year-old kid. And Jim Bouton was actually in the phone book, believe it or not. I looked him up in the Yellow Pages. He lived in Teaneck. I lived in Midland Park. And I called him and left a message on his uh, answering machine. Back then, answering machines weren't even that common. And a couple of days later, my phone rang, and it was Jim Bouton. He said, yeah, I'll absolutely come down to my place in neck and you can interview me. And so I did. Yeah. With, with a friend of mine who was also named Paul. So lots of Paul's on this show here today. And, and uh, he couldn't have been kinder. He was just so nice and helpful and, and really was just terrific. And, and uh, so it's nice when you get to meet somebody you, you, you look up to and they're kind, same, th- same thing's absolutely true with Roy White, who is just the most kindest human being ever. And writing this book with him has been a delight And, you know, again, like you talk about writing books and it can become laborious and time consuming and and difficult. There wasn't a difficult moment with Roy White in the entire process. It was just fun and interesting. And and I learned a great deal. And he was just gracious with his time and his memories and his photographs and 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 everything. So, yeah, another another great, great person. So to cut to the chase, my favorite baseball book or a sports book of all time is ball four. And it's not even close.
1: Great. Well, I can't argue with that. That, that is a, uh, a classic for sure. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about about the least among them. And again, when does, when does the Roy White book come out? Uh, the Roy White
0: book will come out in April.
1: Okay, great. So I will definitely keep my eyes open for that. Um, Thanks again Paul for coming on. The, the book
0: is great. And I wish you the best with that book and with White White book. Uh thank you Paul. This was a great pleasure. I love talking with you and uh again, yeah, hope we can do it again and let's keep in touch. It's uh it was it was great reminiscing with you and and I love your show and I was glad um, I am glad to have been a part of it. Great. Thanks thanks again.